the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, Aubrey, you and I have been talking a lot, I would say over the last six months or so, uh, about the whole movement of quote-unquote deconstruction. Yes, yes. Uh, And there was an interesting kind of back and forth around that. But before we get into what was said... uh, Help people understand what do we mean when we use the phrase deconstruction? Yeah, there's a there's a movement, particularly in evangelical Christianity right now, where some people call themselves ex-evangelicals or deconstructionist evangelicals, where basically they're stepping back from the faith that they grew up in and beginning to question some things about it. Specifically, I would say related to issues of race, of womanhood and even sexuality and then are ideally deconstructionists are reconstructing their faith in a way that feels more um, biblically accurate, feels more authentic. Sometimes what we see in deconstruction is a bit of cynicism and um, maybe leaving the faith altogether. Mm-hmm. But the best version of reconstruction is a stronger faith at the end. That's right. So we often talk on this show about deconstruction can be a positive thing if reconstruction is the ultimate goal. And uh, one of the weird places that we see this going on a lot, I'm sure there'll be, there's got to be a book written about this someday, at least a, a lengthy article, is in um, the, the contemporary Christian uh, artist movement. Yeah, that's right, Brian. We are seeing that. That has happened a lot. And that's where we get this story because John Cooper, who uh, is part of Skillet. Oh, yes. So you might remember Skillet. He uh, had very harsh things to say at a youth conference recently, of all places, about the deconstruction movement. Hmm. Uh, And then there's other people, uh, a guy from D.C. Talk saying he's been deconstructing for decades. So he pushed back a guy from uh, some other bands just pushing back Derek Webb, pushing back. But John Cooper said this. And here is the money quote, Aubrey, that is causing a lot of people to respond, especially other artists. Uh, John Cooper said this from the stage. It's time that we declare war against this deconstruction Christian movement. And I'll tell you what, I don't even like calling it deconstruction Christian movement because there is nothing Christian about it. It is a false religion. It is a whole other religion. And so John Cooper, Mm. and he's kind of an in-your-face guy, but he basically has said in his view uh, deconstruction, this is altogether bad. It's a false religion. It mm. is taking people away from Jesus mm. and that we as Christians need to, quote unquote, declare war instead of kind of some of the language you and I use yeah. of going, hey, people are just being honest with where they're at. Yes. They might be more deconstructing their church background than they're deconstructing the gospels sometimes. Uh, and that hopefully there's reconstruction on the other end where this could be a helpful process. He comes out to uh, in this time and says, no, absolutely not, that it's time for the church and evangelicals and Christians to declare war against this and call it what it is. Uh, so, Aubrey, I don't know what you think mm. about what he had to say. Is this 
Does he have is any of what he says mm. hold some water for you yeah. here? Cause you to think. What do you think about what John Cooper had to say there? You know, I I can see why it is tempting to go. This is wrong. This isn't okay. Let's fight back against this. And to and to try to use that tactic to help people increase their faith instead of decrease their faith. So I I can understand some of it, but I I definitely think and and this is something I'm trying to learn in my own experience just as a church leader, as a friend. Um if it hasn't been your experience and it's hard for you to understand, mm. it can be easy to sort of almost vilify that thing that's happening. Instead of saying, I think the right thing to say is, wow, that hasn't been my experience, Deconstructor. Can you talk to me about that? Why is this important to you? Or what's your journey like right now? And I I believe that actually builds better bridges, mm. shows more compassion, shows more love as you enter into a conversation rather than just like um, making a blanket statement like this is wrong, period. Because, what, yes, of course, some of this is moving in the wrong direction, but we're actually seeing some of it move in a really beautiful direction. And I think it's something pastors, leaders, uh, especially qu- kind of, quote unquote, professional Christians like this guy. I don't like that term, but you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Um need to maybe think about this with a little more nuance. Yeah. What do you think, Brian? I think that this is what makes it difficult. While we discuss a deconstruction movement, uh, I just gave air quotes, which is probably a bad thing to do on radio because you can't really <laughs> you can't see, see that. that. While we call it a movement, there's no, um, I would say there's no unifying source. Uh, there's no unifying um, element to the quote unquote deconstruction yeah. movement, other than what you're getting rid of, that you're getting rid of some stuff. I think there's healthy deconstruction. I think there is healthy, man, I grew up in what now I kind of gotten away from it feels like an abusive mm. church or yeah. some fundamentalist tendencies yeah. that, that were not Christ-like uh, and all these things. I think that's healthy. Uh, where I don't think this becomes healthy is one of two ways. You might remember we discussed this a while ago, Matt Chandler, about a year ago, uh, talked about how deconstruction in today's culture sometimes can be viewed as sexy. Like this is like the mm, thing to it, do. Trendy. Yeah. Trendy yes. is another way to yeah. say it. And I think that's where it gets dangerous. When high school kids, college kids, people in their mid-20s are going, well, I think what I'm supposed to do mm-hmm. is reject my faith in this age and cut it all the way down to its its foundation or its, its studs and try to build up something that I want. I think that makes me uncomfortable. And then, quite frankly, when you got people profiting off of deconstruction, right. uh, that's also right, problematic. Right. And so I would say, and I have faith that when people have been saved and when they, by good faith, are trying to figure out what is true and gospel in Jesus and what are the things that maybe they experienced that were uh, wrong or put on top of the yeah. faith that aren't really, I yeah. think that's healthy. Ultimately, Aubrey, I think that the goal is reconstruction. And at that phase, yeah. Okay, that's good. There's like when you buy a house and stuff is not solid, you might tear it down to the studs right, and rebuild. Right. It I do worry about the trendiness of it. Like yeah, let's deconstruct. It's almost like I wish we could I wish we could understand that part of our spiritual formation is a season of other other authors have called it hitting a wall, mm. which I think is similar to a deconstruction where you get to a place where you're like, hmm. I don't know. This has gotten really hard. Do, is this actually true? Is right. the faith of my youth right? The beautiful part of that is I think God uses that in mighty ways to grow intimacy with him if we lean in, if Mm. we wait patiently, if we keep going. And I do think that's part of what's happening in deconstruction. But unfortunately, what you do see is what you're talking about, Brian, is where some people just hit that wall, start their deconstruction, and then they're done. Like they lose their faith altogether. And so 
it's like that moment is an invitation. Either you're leaning in and you're walking away. And, and I could see why you would want to, you know, rage war against the walking away mm-hmm. or the, mm-hmm. um, like you said, kind of the trendiness of it. But for those who are sincerely trying to figure out, make their faith more real, I think this is probably part of a beautiful growth process God has them on. Yeah, I, I guess that's where we come, where we land. It could be one of, it could be both those and a bunch of yeah, them. Yeah, that's right. It could be, you know, for show or it could be I'm just walking away from the faith and yeah. that we want to declare war because right. we want to right. not see that happen. But as people are trying to come up with a more Christ-like, a more biblical faith, maybe uh, deconstructing from what they were grow- what they grew up with yeah. or maybe something else, I think that is really healthy. Well, coming up next, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, a director of the of a place called The School Could for Conversion. He's going to join us. Uh, he talked, he wrote a book entitled Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. I'm sure this is going to be a uh, intriguing and for some people a difficult conversation, but we're excited to do that next with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of the book, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. He's also the director of the School for Conversion. His name is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yeah, good to... Good to talk. It's really good to have you with us, our friend, and uh, glad that you're spending some time with us. Uh, before we dive into the book and some other things, I would just love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. We would love for them to get to know you a little bit more. So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, uh, anybody who listens to me for uh, a few seconds can hear that I'm from uh, the South. <laughs> I grew up, in, grew up in North Carolina. Uh, actually, not too far from Mayberry, if you've ever seen the Andy Griffith show. Wow. Oh, uh, wow. My, my, my great-granny grew up with Andy Griffith in a town called Mount Airy, and uh, uh, he reproduced a version of uh, their hometown for Hollywood. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in a, a little tobacco town up there and in the Baptist church. And um, as a young person in the 80s and 90s, uh, I wanted to be a um, politician for Jesus. Mm. And then uh, I got quite involved in uh, the culture wars and in uh, kind of right-wing politics and uh, suddenly realized that uh, not everything that was happening in practice lined up with what I'd been taught in Sunday school. And so I um, I started looking for another way to follow Jesus in public. Mm. And uh, I met the black church tradition in the South. And so I've spent the last... 25 years learning from uh, mostly from black Christians how to be a Christian in public in the mm. South. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a book right there. You should write a book about that. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, we are so excited to, to talk to you a little bit about reconstructing the gospel, finding freedom from slaveholder religion. And Jonathan, for our audience, can you unpack that term slaveholder religion? Well, I, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about racism, about the ways that it's uh, kind of uh, become the status quo in the uh, systems of our lives. And um, 
part of what I wanted to sort of explore with this book is how it got uh, tangled up with religion. Mm. Because uh, one of the things that you can see if you pay attention to the story that gave us race in America, I mean, I think that's probably the, a good place to begin for uh, most of us who think of ourselves as white. Uh, we think that uh, racism is a byproduct of race. Mm. And uh, the story pretty much makes it clear that it was the other way around, mm. that, um, that we, uh, we had a situation where uh, it was to the advantage of some people who, uh, you know, owned the land and the plantations to use uh, black bodies. And so they created uh, this way of differentiating people in order to make that system work. Yeah. And uh, most of the, most of the biases and bigotry and such that we have are the result of the uh, justifications that were given for that practice mm-hmm. um, that made the plantation economy possible. Well, when the when that whole thing began, the people who started it were members of churches, yeah. and um, their pastors told them more or less that uh, that that was a bad thing uh, to claim to own another human being. Mm. Uh, was a, a bad thing, particularly if the other human being claimed to be a brother and sister in Christ. Mm. Uh, these these conversations happened; they're recorded. Uh, it was, you know, in the Virginia colony. It was mostly within the Church of England, but very quickly, uh, the people, of course, who uh, owned the plantations were the main donors to the churches and to the theological institutions that came to be, and so they funded. Uh, a way of using the faith to justify the practice of owning and using other humans' bodies, and that is uh, is what I call slaveholder religion. Mm. Uh, that 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 way of twisting Christianity so that uh, uh, the practice of owning other people based on their race uh, could be justified by the scriptures. Mm. And Jonathan, what does it look like, uh, the, the phrase reconstructing the gospel, uh, what does that look like? And if we as churches, as you talk about, we're, we're working towards reconstructing the gospel, what would that do to some of these race issues that we're seeing within the church and within our communities? Help us understand how the gospel plays uh, central into this. If you believe, as I do, that uh, the gospel got distorted in, other, in order to make this practice, uh, you know, something that was acceptable to Christians, then you can read the story that we've all inherited and ask, well, you know, at what point did folks go back and read the gospel differently? Mm. And, of course, there are people who have challenged this reading all along, but there is a through line uh, in which the basic moves that were made to say, for example, that the well-being of someone's spirit is separate from the well-being of their body. Right. Uh, um, these moves have been passed down to us, so that even though you know the Industrial Revolution came along in the Civil War and uh, um, slavery was no longer necessary or legal in this country, um, that way of reading the Bible didn't go away. Mm. And so, in, in in so many ways, um, I think the work of reconstructing the gospel is about uh, unlearning the habit. Mm. Of, um, uh, of of separating justice from uh, the proclamation of the gospel, separating the well-being of uh, people's bodies in this world from their eternal souls, um, and 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 figuring out how we go back and 
and read the scriptures such that um, the fullness of that gospel is um, is revealed to us in uh, in our spiritual lives. That's good. And Jonathan, you know, you're you're talking to two pastors here. You're a minister yourself. What would you say for church communities? Can they be doing? to begin to um, maybe work towards some more racial justice and begin to reconstruct the gospel? Well, uh, there are a lot of things. Uh, one that I think is really important is to uh, engage uh, Christians from other traditions in a learning posture. Uh, so uh, churches that are most impacted by the legacy of slaveholder religion are churches that uh, are overwhelmingly white in, in, in terms of race, because um, to be white, of course, is to not have to think about race. And uh, my read on how slaveholder religion got passed down is mostly people just never thought about it. Like it never occurred to people that it was yeah. a problem. Yeah. Um, but if your personal experience has revealed to you that you know racism is not only a problem, it's a lethal threat to you and people you love, then uh, you're likely to have uh, learned other ways of reading the Bible. And uh, that's been my experience uh, among you know, black sisters and brothers in the South, is that um, there's this long tradition of knowing the Jesus who, who uh, promises to set you free from bondage. Mm. Uh, the God who raised Israel out of Egypt before he raised Jesus from the dead. And that, you know, God can make a way out of no way. Mm. Did, did it for those who were enslaved on the plantations, you know, in generations past, and continues to do it for folks today. And so, in that context, I think uh, we can learn from those who uh, have had um, the spirit and uh, the, the tradition reveal, uh, I think, a fullness of the gospel that's been really denied to people uh, who have been told that they're white. Mm. And Jonathan, right. again, it's great to have you with us. With the last minute or two that we have, I want to make sure to highlight uh, that you're also the director of the School for Conversion. Uh, help us understand, what is the School Con- for Conversion? What is it that you guys are doing there uh, as as you are the director of it? Well, you know, if you read Jesus, Jesus talks about um, metanoia, the, this you know transformation of uh, the whole being, um, and uh, conversion sometimes gets kind of co-opted to just mean, you know, uh, making people believe like we do. But I think the heart of conversion is always turning from those things that uh, lead us toward death, uh, toward uh, the life that's really life. So uh, we've had a, a school that's rooted in the discipleship and formation traditions of, um, of the faith-rooted Southern Freedom Movement. Uh, it's uh, a popular education center so that it's you know not a degree program or anything, but something that people who want to can use as a resource uh, for, we say, Mike, making surprising friendships possible, mm-hmm. for building beloved community across these lines of division, and for really uh, uh, tapping into the power of the gospel to, uh, to give hope for another possibility in the midst of the divisions of this world. Oh, it sounds like such an important mm. work. And again, the book 
is called Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. We'd encourage you to go pick that up. You can learn more about Jonathan and his books at JonathanWilsonHartgrove.com. That's JonathanWilsonHartgrove.com. And you can also connect with them on Twitter at Wilson Hartgrove. That's at Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan, we are so thankful for you spending time with us today. Uh, thanks so much for doing it. Well, thanks for having a show on the common good. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> our, our pleasure. pleasure. Our pleasure. And you are listening to the common good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Music makes us feel all kinds of emotions. Music makes us want to get up and dance. And music transports us to some of the most special times in our lives. Brian and Aubrey are going to share some of their favorite music on the Common Good Songbook. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160 Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. That music that you heard as we were coming in is because it's something that I introduced uh, probably two or three weeks ago, right? I said, let's see if this could turn into a recurring theme. Uh, Our brilliant producer has entitled this The Common Good Songbook. So here to remind people, here's how it's going to work. You and I are going to pick a song that means a lot to us, that that brings up uh, emotion in us. And it could be everything from a hymn that we sing in church. I do believe last time we did this, I said, I talked about it is well. Uh, Or it could be all the way out to just pop culture or something from, uh, you chose a non-Christian song last time, if I remember right. A Disney song. You chose a Disney song. That's correct. And so all across the board, but you've got to share the song and then you've got to tell us the story as to why this song matters to you at all. Okay. I'm going to let you go first. Oh, you are going to let me go first. Okay. This, this, I don't know why this is always so hard for me because there's so many songs, but that's why we do it more than once. So that's good. Okay, I'm actually going to go with a hymn this time because I was feeling convicted last time that I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not doing it this not time. Not really, but and I, I actually, I, I don't know that this is an actual hymn. It's been covered so many times that I think it is. But anyway, it's come thou fount of every blessing. Of course, that's a hymn. Okay, yes, you yes. just hear it's constantly re redone. So I, you know, I didn't know if someone wrote it to try to sound old or whatever. But so I don't know the history of the song. Okay, which is. Probably not a great idea, but here's why I love it. I'm going to read you a few lines. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily. I'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and see. Seal it for thy courts I have loved that line throughout most of my Christian faith because it's so honest, right? Like we are prone to wander. We are um, prone to leave the God that we don't actually want to leave and we just do. And so thinking about God's grace being the, the chain that like just keeps, I'm just going to keep bringing you back every time you wander. I'm going to keep bringing my heart back to you. There's something so uh, beautiful, encouraging. I, I, I just, I really love that line. And that was one of the first hymns that I felt like this is real. Like they're seeing some honest stuff in this. And then also I, I love a song that just reminds you of good. I 
don't know, good theology right. and like um, reminds you of like there's some awe in it. Right. Yeah. And this is certainly a, this is certainly a song of awe. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Like it's just deep and beautiful and I love it. So that's you, mine. Come thou fount of every blessing. You highlighted the line that I think every time I sing that song in church or hear it, that grabs me. Mm. And it is that it is the first line you said there. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Yeah. It's not just prone to wander, but I feel it in mm. my soul. Every time I sing that, I always in my mind, I'm glad you brought that up. Because every time I sing that, I think to myself, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's just on. It's just it hits the nail on the head. Prone to us. leave the yes. God I love. Like. That's my tendency. Yeah. Like my tendency is to wander. My yeah. tendency is to uh, is to go. And yeah, I, I love that one. Okay, you guys sing that often or not often at Redeemer? we don't sing that often at Renewal at all. Redeemer. Oh. There's so many Redeemers out there. <laughs> we are Renewal, renewal. but Redeemer is a good church. So um, no, we don't sing it very often. I feel like we need to bring it back. There you go. There you go. Okay, that's a good one. And you went. Put one up on the hymn uh, tally for you. <laughs> All right, what about you, Pastor Brian? I am going to go Christian song. Okay, okay. But not when you sing in church. Oh, interesting. All right, so let me give you the background of this. Well, I'll tell you which one I'm I'm choosing first. But okay. this is completely for personal reasons. And I'm going to tell you a story that's going to make you cry. Nah, it won't oh, make you cry. no. Yes, I'm it will. just kidding. It Everything will makes me cry. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, Cinderella. So Okay. Do you not know this song? So you have boys. Right. I Came out in 2007. Okay. And Stephen Curtis Chapman, and tragically, one of his daughters was killed months later. Oh, yes. But it, he, he wrote this for his daughters before that, um, kind of as a way to remind him to appreciate each moment that he had with their his girls as they grew up. It is essentially Aubrey the Christian version of Cats in the Cradle. Oh, no. But, but with, uh, with daughters. And Aww. so when this song came out, my oldest daughter, Madeline, was like three years old or four years old. Oh, okay? and she's your firstborn daughter. My firstborn daughter. Yes. All she's doing is wearing princess dresses and playing. Uh, and so she, the song goes like this, right? It's totally like sappy. This song is... So sappy, and I own it from the beginning. Okay, okay. But to this day, if I hear it, I just stare off into <gasps> no, the distance, like Brian. my little girl, my little girl. So <laughs> Let's it, hear it. the song literally says, begins. She spins and she sways to whatever she plays without a care in the world. He's like, Brian. He's choking up, folks. And I'm sitting say here wearing the weight of the world on my shoulders. Aww. He goes on, and then she comes up and says, "Dad, I need you. There's a ball at the castle, and I've been invited. I need to practice my dancing." And so he does. Well, then you can guess how the Stephen Curtis Chapman writes a good song because yeah. eventually they're walking down the aisle oh, at the wedding, no! and eventually they're uh, she's getting ready for the prom, and it's she's like, "Can you just hug me instead of giving me a kiss?" And oh, now no. it's prom, oh, no. and then it's wedding day, oh, no. and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, like, I'm going to get you with this." You ready? Okay. So when this song came out. Uh, I it was back in the days of the iPod. So yeah, I would have it, and my wife got. It. She would be like, "Here, dan-. we would play it," and I would lift my daughter up, no. and we would dance around the living room. Oh and Aubrey, there Quiet. is this idea of like 
wow, life is going really fast. You and I have talked about this, right? Yeah, We've joked the about cats of time, the right. But I can remember in 2007 when this song comes out, yeah. being like, my daughter's got all that, whatever. All She's time. the little one in this story. Can I tell you, this past weekend, my wife and daughter went and picked up her prom dress. Oh, like, we're there. No. And so the whole song ends with like, uh, dad, the wedding's still six months away, but I need to practice my dancing. And so they go and they dance. Precious. And so it is, it's, just, and I feel like I'm talking about this a lot on the show, but this passage of yeah, time, the song, in it right you need, now. you need to go listen to this song because I am going to admit to you, it is as cheese ball as a, sa- a song. <laughs> like it's kind of terrible. Like if you were twenties without your kids, you'd be like, this is everything that's wrong with Christian music. This is all that's wrong. But the second you have a daughter, it's game changing. And you play this song, you're like, I'm in. Oh. I'm in. And, uh, and you're just like, okay. Like, yes, the passage of time. So I'm going with Stephen Curtis Chapman, mm. Cinderella, Love Aubrey. Your, uh, your homework over the weekend is to listen to this song. Okay, I'm writing it down, and Brian. And either come back and go, that is the absolute worst song I've ever <laughs> It's Christian Cats in the Cradle. It's all that it is. But it makes me tear up because my daughters are getting old quickly. Fair. Okay. Okay, fair. Yeah, I mean, yours is about to graduate. Like, this is a whole thing. No. Will you play the song as she leaves for her prom? No. <laughs> no. But her and I will still joke about it because she remembers dancing oh around. By the way, Stephen Curtis really Chapman, sweet. he has cornered the market. He's got like the Cats in the Cradle song. Yeah. He has the wedding song. Yeah. Right? That everybody, every yeah. Christian has to play their wedding. Does he, I don't think he's got a funeral song, but he's if he like got a, that, he'd have them all. He's like a, um, like kind of a good country music singer, but for Christian music, right? Yeah. Like he's got the, he can tell a story. Through the That's song. right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Yeah. So you have to go listen to that song. Okay. All right. I'm uh, on it. Today. All right. Coming up next, Aubrey, this is a provocative title. Four common sins Christians are oddly okay with. Ooh. We're going to discuss those sins that we don't really like to talk about. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I saw just the title of a article that just piqued my interest. Oh, right? okay. You write for a living or at times, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure that whether it's you or somebody else who writes the headline, the goal is to always get a headline that causes Absolutely. you to go. I would like to yes. click on this. Yes. So uh, here was the headline. Four common sins Christians are oddly okay oh, with. Oh, interesting. Four common sins that Christians are oddly okay, okay. with. Okay. Before we dive into, because these are very specific ones at this. This is written by Tamara Chamberlain over at KanosProject.com. Uh, before we dive into the four that she had, which is one or two that, co- we should, this should be a top five list. Top yeah. five list uh, <laughs> sins that we're good seems with. dangerous. What are some of the sins that maybe you read, when you read them in scripture, you go, wow, that seems pretty cut and dry that that this falls in yeah. the sin category. Uh, but it's not one that we hear about often. And if we do, it's one that we tend to be okay with. I mean, I feel like uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy feels like when like not we're all of us are good with not resting, especially in America is staying real, real busy. And, um, and you know, it's one of the 10 commandments. That's yeah. the first one that comes to mind. What about you? 
So, uh, and, and I, I might at certain times in my life need this sermon preached at me, but uh, have, yeah. you, have you ever heard a sermon about gluttony? Oh, no, like, I've never heard a sermon about gluttony. Coming off uh, <gasps> Super Bowl week, think about a week ago and the stuff you... <laughs> I'm telling you, I had such an emotional week this week that I definitely ate my emotions. Ah, that's funny, that's wow. funny. And so, uh, yeah, so gluttony is one. I also think that a lot of us live by the American, um, you know, not, not the American dream, but the American idea that greed is good. Right? Absolutely. That's from Wall Street. Yeah. Greed is good. Absolutely. And the Bible would say greed is bad. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that. There's definitely some sin related to money and materialism that we're okay with. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, uh, yeah, let's see if we could come up with more. But let me read you her four. Okay. Let's hear. And see what you think about them. Number one, she said, right theology without love. This hmm. is the first common sin. She says Christians are oddly okay with. We are the people of the Bible. There's no greater authority in our life than the very words of God. The Bible's very straightforward regarding matters of salvation, uh, and then there are others' issues. And then she gets down to this point that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, and that, you know what, uh, you, can know, you can have all the theology that you want, yeah. but that love or the lack of love mm. kind of changes everything. What mm. do you think? Is this something that we often ignore? You know, this is interesting to me because I don't think any of us would ever say this. Mm-hmm. Like, we'd be like, no, of course, write theology with love. But I definitely think at least in the church world I've grown up with, like, um, uh, the things you believed mattered more than the way you believed. There you go. Uh, and so I, there's some accuracy to this. That I mean, we saw this in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. This seemed to be pointed out quite a bit that like Driscoll had quote unquote right doctrine, and therefore that covered a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. But really what was missing was a life of love or a practice of those doctrines. That's right. that's so, yeah, right. that's a good one. All right. Number two. And this was one that came to my mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've heard sermons about this, but I don't know. We're, I don't know <laughs> how well we do with this one. Uh, slander and gossip. Yeah. She writes, our nation seems to thrive on slander and gossip. Mm-hmm. Gossip, or at the very least, it can be said that we certainly have an addiction, an addiction to it. Mm. She says, gossip and slander have become so socially acceptable that we give them a pass in our own lives. Mm. This common sin flies under the radar as we take inventory of our own hearts. She goes on to say, this must change. I would agree with her. So yeah. I want to put on that, that this is one that because so many of us do it, right. we probably avoid talking right. about it. Help us understand the dangers oh, of slander and gossip. I, you know what, Elle, before I do that, I'm just sitting here like, oh, in my own heart, how many times I like justify gossip by venting. I just need to vent. Can I just vent yes, here real quick? Can. And then that like saying I'm just venting is my like excuse for gossip. You know what I mean? Mm. Oh, you know, the, the, I think the danger of this is, one, you know, we just know that there's, like, the power of the tongue, and so our words do hurt people. And then I think, two one of the things we talk about a lot here at The Common Good is our common um, uh, image-bearingness, right? Yeah, and yeah. and if, you are, if you're gossiping, slandering another person, you actually are tearing down the fact that they're humans created in the image of God with dignity. And, yeah. and, and it's also cowardly because you're not having a, like, one-to-one conversation about something that's hard. It's also egotistical because you're putting yourself as better than them. You know, I heard a pastor once say that, so if someone comes to you and says, so-and-so, blah, 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 it's, 
in, it's it's okay that you heard it. It's a begins to become a sin when you go yes and and then you mm. add engage in the conversation. Instead, you should just like meet that person with silence, mm. and that silence is enough to get them to talk. But this is a good one. This That's is real. Right. This is a real list right I'm here. Interested to know what you think of number three because she does caveat it. I think in some ways that make it a little more comfortable, but. When she describes four common sins that we're oddly okay with, number three, she says disregard for leadership. Hmm. She says the last few years have shown us just how much our distrust of leadership has grown in our country. We question the intentions, motives, and just plain facts of every word and action from those placed in authority over us. Of course, we shouldn't accept everything our leaders say or do uncritically, but our cynicism and distrust shouldn't lead us to the common sin of disregard for leadership. It goes to Hebrews 13 about having confidence in your leaders and submission to authority. Mm. So you've got national leaders, but you have yeah. also have church leaders yeah. in this. And a lot of, Aubrey, quite frankly, the discussion that we've been having, I would say in the last couple of years over abuse in churches mm-hmm. and stuff, is a healthy cynicism towards leadership. Right. So how do you balance this one? I'm. This is tricky because there are places in Scripture, too, where even the Apostle Paul went against the leadership of the day, and mm-hmm. Jesus went against the leadership of the day. So this one's tricky. I, this feels like a cultural thing to me because we, Kevin and I lead a multi-ethnic church, and I would say that the people from um, non-white evangelical backgrounds that come to Renewal are the ones that show Kevin as a leader quite a bit of... Um, deference, mm. trust, respect, call him pastor. It's important that they call him pastor. That's In fact, if he says, just call me Kevin, that's offensive. Mm-hmm. So he's had to learn to be like, okay, it's okay for people to call me pastor. But a lot of um, like our, and I'm speaking stereotypically here, but this is just our experience at Renewal. A lot of our evangelical white folks are way more casual, distrustful of, or mm. cynical of, Maybe not Kevin necessarily, but sometimes with Kevin and leadership. So I don't know if this is cultural. I don't know. This this is a tricky one, Brian, because I do think pastors probably deserve more respect than they get. But then there are the crazy exceptions. And I don't mean to keep going back to Driscoll, but that's just right. in my mind right now where, you know, honoring your leader sort of became the like justification for like staying in a really unhealthy place. So somehow there has to be wisdom I in think this. That's wise. I, I think that wisdom is wise. Number four. This is a tough one. Labeling pride as self-worth. Oh, interesting. So this idea that we confuse self-worth with self-respect and that it can also be a pride issue. And instead we're going, nope, this is who God has called, you know, that we can Mm. conflate the two. I do think in that one's a tough one to unpack. But Aubrey, I would just certainly say this. The issue of pride is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. The issue of pride is a big one. You can't deny that. Yep. I still th- this one is a struggle for me too. They're all a struggle for me, which means they're probably pushing my buttons in a good way. But um, we should have self worth. Mm-hmm. So again, we go back to we were created in the image and likeness of God, and I think far too often in church, all we do is remind people how terrible, broken, sinful, ugly bleh, they are. Like I'm so tired of that message. Agreed. But it can't be self pride. Maybe that's the point, right? Like it's it's walking with dignity, knowing who we are in Jesus, rather than in our self. That's great. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us on this Friday evening. Um, We on this show love to bring, you know, things about God's word to you, specifically encouragement from scripture maybe ways to read the Bible. One of the things I don't think we've actually tackled, Brian, is this topic of 
Bible translations. How do you know what's being translated which way and how do you pick? I mean, especially for people who are new to Scripture, if you walked into a Christian bookstore, I don't even know if they exist anymore, but if you looked up Bibles online, let's say, because you wanted to buy a new one, there are like 20 at least different translations. And so Mm -hmm. how do you know what you're supposed to pick? And then interestingly, the whole reason that this came up um, in my mind, Brian, is because Bible Gateway, which is a website for just Bible translations, Bible right. commentaries, Bible, Bible articles. It's a great resource, people, a free resource, by the way, BibleGateway.com for anyone who's interested in studying the Bible. They removed a translation called the Passion Translation. Now, I'm not familiar with the Passion Translation, but apparently it's a, it's a quote-unquote heart-level Bible translation And some of the critics just basically said, look, it was a paraphrase posing as a translation and therefore it was taken down. Now, for our listeners who are like, what does that mean? Who cares? Why does that matter that it's a paraphrase rather than a translation? Can you unpack that at all, Brian, for us? Yeah, a little bit. And then I'll have you kind of weigh in Mm -hmm. uh, as well. The, The paraphrase, think about the message, right? The Eugene Peterson Message Bible that it's trying to get, uh, it's paraphrasing the Bible in a way to kind of bring out the point, right? Kind of bring out the story versus a much more literal translation that's trying to say, what did the Greek say? What did the Hebrew say? And we're going to, these scholars are going to literally get into a room together and debate this and try to get as close a translation from the Greek and the Hebrew into the English that we can possibly get, even if that allows for some... um, some difficult discussions yeah, that have to happen. Right. What does that exactly right. mean? Uh, a paraphrase, the danger, Aubrey, of a paraphrase is it is open much more to the interpretation of the one doing the paraphrasing. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I would think the message is probably the most well-known paraphrase. paraphrase. But the passion one here seems like there was some some issues with it. And, and before you kind of give your ideas on it, uh, Bible Gateway has 90 Bible translation. 90. I said 20. 90. Wow. So there you go. How would you differentiate between uh, a uh, a paraphrase and a more literal translation? Yeah, I think I, I would say exactly what you said, that um, a, a translation would be someone is working with the original language, so Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. They're working with those manuscripts and trying to do the best they can to translate uh, it accurately into our English language, where a paraphrase would be you're maybe even starting with an English translation and just trying to make the language a little more accessible mm-hmm, for people. Mm-hmm. And so, again, this is the this is the challenging part. Something like the message, which is a paraphrase, is actually um, wildly read, wildly quoted. Mm. I hear it in sermons. It's very, very popular. My publisher is actually the publisher of the message translation. There's all kinds of versions of the message translation. But I think perhaps why it's not as controversial, although some people are really against the message, but the message has always said it's a paraphrase. The message has never claimed to be a translation, whereas this... um, this passion translation has mm-hmm. claimed to be a translation. Oh, interesting. And and Brian, what's even like wilder in this this whole story about Bible Gateway pulling the um, passion translation off of their site is that the creator of the passion translation, a guy named Brian Simmons, is um, calling it cancel culture mm, and course. saying, look, cancel of culture course. is alive in the church and he's requesting the site to restore the vision. So this gets complicated, mm. right? Okay. 
So let's move aside from this whole controversy about the Passion Translation. When you've got someone new to the Bible and they come to you and they say, which translation do I choose? What do you typically say and why? And then a follow-up question would be, do you preach from that same translation? Uh, Yes. So I tend to be, and see, a lot of this conversation goes back to what have you kind of grown with, Yeah. right? Like where Mm -hmm. do you, uh, so what I'm about to say, I'm not even necessarily saying is better than all the other translations, right? And a lot of the... What I just said is why so many people have clung to the King James version for so long because that's what I've what I grew up in in my Bible. But uh, <laughs> yes, for me, I'm an I'm an NIV guy, and so um, I find it to be really accessible. Uh, yeah, I find it to be people that you and I have had as profs have been on that committee, yep. and uh, but the NIV has gone through some iterations, which is uh, which is interesting. Uh, but I tend to be an NIV guy. All the Bibles, we we decided to put the Bibles in the back of our chairs mm-hmm. at the church, our NIV Bibles. They are all I NIV. Yeah. From the NIV Bible, just so there's not confusion. There was a season where I was preaching from maybe the RSV, maybe. Okay. Oh, But then we had NIV Bibles in our – and so it was just causing confusion. Yeah. This is yeah. years and years and years yeah. ago, and it's probably because people like Mark Driscoll said you're supposed to preach from that. No, ESV. It was the ESV. I was going to say it was the uh, ESV. Yep, 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 yep. And then I, I – so I'm an NIV guy. How about you? Yes. I, so it, this is funny. I love the NIV, mm-hmm. and I study from the NIV, and I study from the ASV as well. If someone were to come to me and say, what Bible translation should I start with? I would probably actually say New Living mm-hmm. or I would say or I would say NIV. Mostly because they're just a little bit more accessible yeah, and you yeah. can trust the translation work that has been done. I will say, it's funny you mentioned that about ESV because that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that sort of became the Gospel Coalition's translation and some of the Reformers translation. And so there was a period when Kevin too was like, we will only do ESV. Yeah, and he sort, through that. Yeah, he sort of laughs, <laughs> at himself now. Like, okay, I'll get over that a little bit. But I, I you know, uh, let me ask you another question related mm. to this, Brian. Why does this even matter? Like, why does it matter that a Christian picks yep. up the message versus NIV versus NLT? Like, yeah. like, what's the wisdom there? What's the advice there? Because our Bibles, we are Bible people, mm. right? And we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. Bibles were also not written in our language. Yeah. Right. They were yeah. not handed down in English. These are translations that have come through the Greek and through the Hebrew. And so if handled poorly, Think of it even as like a trajectory, even if it's like handled 5% poorly yeah. over time, when that gets built upon, it's all of a sudden not going to look anything like the original. That's good. And so you want to be as uh, as true to the original as possible. Like I, I, was, I didn't really know much about the Passion Translation, but I worry about what he says. The guy argued that the Passion Translation's additions and context, quote, expand the essential meaning of the original language by highlighting the essence of God's original message. Well, that's in their opinion. Right. Our right. goal in translation is not to expand the essential original. We're wanting yes. to get back to the yeah. original message. Yeah. Uh, and we want to trust. And so what I would encourage people to do is to Google the process, right? Like Google, not every newest okay. translation is the best. In fact, it's probably not. But if you're a King James person out there, I would encourage you to go do some homework. But I, because I, I would humbly tell you that I think that that's one of the looser translations yes. of all the other ones yes. out there. Uh, and so I, I would just you can Google this stuff and, and see what's the process. Who are the people who've been involved? That's why I trust the NIV mm-hmm. and some others like that, because I'm not looking for a translation that's going to go. 
hey, we're going to go past the Greek in this, that. We're going to try to expand and give you a picture because you might expand into error. Exactly. Right? And that becomes really dangerous. Yeah, that's good, Brian. Thank you for that. That was really, really helpful. Well, when we return, we're going to do one of our favorite things to do on a Friday. That is a top five list. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us. Hopefully you're driving home and you got some big plans tonight. Because it's Friday, we are doing one of our favorite things we get to do each and every week. And that is our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. And in light of Valentine's Day, which was on Monday, Brian and I thought we would do our top five couples from TV shows. Mm, I love this one. This is a fun one. I feel like we've done other things from TV shows, like a favorite mom or a favorite dad. But now we're doing our top five couples. This is going to be a really fun one. I'm anxious to see There's who we be have. Some yeah, there probably is going to be some and crossover. I've got, I've got three honorable mentions when we get to that point. But Ooh. Three. Okay. Yeah. I feel like you're going to name some things, some people too, and I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I forgot about them. I'm, I'm, I do. This is really fun uh, because okay. this doesn't necessarily mean married couples, but it's in the show. They were couples. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, this might highlight the differences you and I have in what we in what watch. We watch. As, as okay. Well. Okay, Brian, why don't you go first? Number five. And this one may be a little controversial because a lot of people did not like their on again, oh. off again relationship. Oh, okay. But I was surprised how happy I was when they got together in the end. Ross and Rachel. I knew you were going to say Ross and Rachel when Ross you said on again, off and again. Rachel. Yeah. Come on. You got to love, gotta Ross, love Ra- Ross and Rachel. I was actually, we, Carrie and I watched Friends. We were, it was early in our marriage. We didn't have kids. Like Friends was a, an easy show for us to watch. And I remember when the, uh, when the finale came on and being surprised how happy I was that they ended up together. Yeah, it was great. You need we needed that. And that was like twenty years of our life rooting for Ross and Rachel. They it needed really to get was. together. Hey, they were on a break. They-, <laughs> <laughs> they were on a break. Okay. Oh, the hard part for me was putting this in order, but okay. I'm actually gonna go with another friends couple that I even like more than Ross and Rachel, and that's Monica and Chandler. Uh, yes. You know, because they weren't on and off again. They were best friends, they fell in love, they actually were like hashtag relationship goals. Ross and Rachel were a mess. They were. I just found I found Monica to be a little annoying. Well, I think people did. Yes. Yes. And that was the point of her character. So therefore, it became hard to root for them. But yes, they are much more stable. I loved Monica and Chandler. Much more stable couple. They are, for sure. Ross and Rachel. All right. Number four, and this comes out of a show that my family has only recently (gasps) binge watched. I know who you're going to say. From Parks and Rec. I'm not going to go the main couple. Oh, okay. I'm going to go April and Andy. April and Andy, they're a great couple. April and yeah. Andy from Parks and Rec. Yeah. They are the couple that everybody wants to be, right? Yeah. They're just funny. Uh, they don't Goofy. care. They laugh. Yes. April and yes. Andy. absolutely love April and Andy. Okay, Brian, um, I am actually going to do, this is a newer couple, but they have like snuck up on me. And That's I, every, code word for a show I don't watch. Yes, they're probably a show you don't watch. <laughs> this couple, every time I watch them, I'm like, oh, I like what they have going on. And that's going to be um, Beth and Randall Pearson from This Is Us. 
they're just sassy and flirty and cute, but also like they fight in okay. a real way. Okay. I, I just, they, I've really, really grown to love them over the years. All right. All right. Uh, the next time I watch This Is Us will be the first okay. time. Okay. So Fair. there was a time that Carrie and I, we, uh, we set This Is Us to record on a weekly basis and we never watched one of them. I mean, it, it's a show that requires a lot from its audience. You you will not leave nope. that show without weeping. So you're not. That's not the show you watch while you're like ironing or folding laundry. You're like either in or you're out. How much ironing do you think I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> that's another top five list. Yes, we'll talk about ironing. Yes. All right, Ryan. What is your number three? Number three, and I only recently came across this show again. I used to watch this show all the time. Yeah. And it's probably been 10 years since I've watched an episode. And only within the last month have I watched probably four or five episodes. Okay. Uh, I'm going with Ray and Deborah Barone oh, from Everybody yeah, Loves they're Raymond. they're a good couple. They're a good couple. A cringy show at times because of the parents. Yes. Let me tell you, as somebody whose parents <laughs> live next door to them now... Uh, but Ray and Deborah Barone, yeah. I, they have, I just love how Deborah, they just, they make fun of each other. Yes. They argue. She's they sassy laugh, with him. Did, oh, they, yeah. Uh, I like Ray and Deborah Barone. I forgot about them. That's a good couple. Okay. This one may be on your list. I feel like this is going to be on a lot of people's list. Kind of a, at least, at least in the 2000s, a pretty classic couple the besides Ross and Rachel, you know up. who it's going to be. This Possibly. Is, this is absolutely Jim and Pam from yeah. The Office. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, they, you know, he pined for her for so long and then she pined for him and they were, I love a best friend that becomes romance. That's one yeah. of my favorite storylines. Yeah. So I, I, Jim and Pam all the way. So let me comment on that because my number two is also Jim, okay. uh, Jim Halpert and Pam Beasley okay. from The Office. Okay. Uh, they were kind of like you said 10 years ago, they were everybody's couple. Yeah. Like they got to yeah. get together. I do want to encourage you to Google sometime. I just want you to put this in your Google machine, as okay. we like to call your it. Your Google machine. I would okay. like you to put this. Was Pam Beasley a bad person? Oh. There's this whole kind of thread because everybody, oh. I would say no to this in the end because most people would say Pam Beasley was sweet. Yeah. She was working through life issues. They got together. There are people that do not have this love for Pam Beasley, but okay. thought that she treated people, including Jim, poorly okay. through the time. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. I, one other thing real fast about yeah. Jim and Pam that I love. Yeah. Is that they don't, they've been building to this relationship. Yes. Building. There's yes. on, you know, oh, they're go. oh, no, wait, she's back with, yeah. with uh, Roy or he's mm-hmm. dating uh, mm-hmm. Karen or mm-hmm. whatever else. When they finally get together, it is done so like in a weird like in just kind of such a it's subtle so way subtle. where she's talking and yeah we'll never be and he just peeks his head and like are you free tonight let's go on a date or okay it's and then a date. she like tears up and that and that starts jim and oh, pam it's not like this big season know, finale where they do uh, but instead it's just are you pam are you free tonight are you always oh, say are you free for dinner all right it's a date and that's oh, it. Then they're together. So oh, good. So right. good. So I good. I knew we were gonna. Uh, if you had told yeah. me to guess, which one are we going to cross it's over? Definitely on? gonna Jim be and Jim and Pam. Okay, your number two. All right, my number two. Ooh, this is a hard one for me because I've got several favorites, but I am gonna. Um, I, I'm gonna go with close to your number four, but I'm gonna go with Leslie and Open Ben Wyatt. I just think they are so cute, so lovable, so happy. I I also like their again these friends who become something else. Yes. So I'm going to go with very them. lovable. Yeah. Yeah. I do like them. Yeah. Although I did almost choose uh, uh, Ann Perkins and what's yeah. what's his name in it? Chris yes, Trager. Chris. Yes, I almost chose them. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, honorable mentions. Let me give them okay. to you. I have three. Okay. I have Phil and Claire Dumphy. Yeah, they're cute. From Modern yep. Family. Yep. Uh, 
you have to have Homer and Marge Simpson. If you're a Simpson fan, you do. I'm not even a big Simpson fan, but I mean, they've been together 30 yeah. years now. You know, they're really kind of going. Yep. Uh, here's one from our past that I think is going to be uh, in your wheelhouse from Saved by the Bell, Zach and Kelly. Yeah, Zach and Kelly. They're good. And they're still together. They're on the new season of Saved I by the Bell, and we, they're still together. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. We do not count the new season of well, Saved I do. by the Bell. I do. It's, it's actually pretty nope. watchable. Nope. Okay, Honorable I'm going to give you end? mine. And this couple almost made my list, but I haven't known them long enough because I just started binge-watching the show um, Kim's Convenience on Netflix. But the main couple, Mr. and Mrs. Kim, are just really sweet and they love each other so much and they've been married forever and I, I really really like them so I'm throwing them and then I'm gonna Ross and Rachel I'm okay. gonna throw them on they're my honorable mention okay. as well so all right friends. are we ready for our number one so my number one is not going to surprise you my number one favorite TV couple is Kevin Arnold and Winnie Cooper oh how did I how did I Wonder even years, how did I which, even uh, which just had its anniversary again for when it started was I think Aww. last weekend I saw that oh nice Kevin Arnold and Winnie Cooper can I are you ready to mess with your head here oh, the no. Wonder Years I which don't everybody know. if you've listened to the show you know the Wonder Years is my favorite you love show. That show but when we watched the Wonder Years I believe it premiered in 1988 I believe or 87 okay. And it was depicting the 1960s, yes. right? That's what yes. he was looking back to. Yes. It is the equivalent of the Wonder Years starting today and looking back at the year 2002. <laughs> no! That is... Okay, that's wild. Old, oh, Aubrey. wow. That's My so number one. Wild. Yes. Kevin and Winnie okay, from the Wonder Years. Okay, that's a good Years. one. All right. Plus, everybody always had a uh, crush on Winnie Cooper. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody had a crush. Yes. I wanted her long, straight hair. <laughs> and, you know, she was that girl next door for sure. All right. My number one... Um, and I, you know, they're not the, they're, well, they are stars of the show. They weren't the main point of the show, but I think they're the best couple of all time. Marshall Erickson and Lily Aldrin from How I Met Your Mother. Another, they, they were the only people they'd ever been with. They fell in love. They got married. They're just the cutest couple ever and they're best friends. So there we go. Marshall and Lily. All right. Who did we forget? Please let us know. We want to hear from you on our social media. Thanks so much for joining us today. Brian and I will be back again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.